Good evening, everyone. This sounds like a working operating sound system, so that's excellent. I'm Rosemary Hollis. I'm professor of Middle East policy studies at City University, and I'm absolutely delighted to be invited here this evening to chair this meeting, which is to be addressed by Fawaz Jerges, and he will be talking about the Islamist moment in the Middle East, domestic and geostrategic implications, a subject on which he is eminently qualified to give us insights. Now, he is going to speak for about 45 minutes, and that will leave us another 40 minutes for questions and answers. I'll ask you to follow a certain format when we come to the Q&A session. But before we come to that, if any of you are interesting, interested in using Twitter, you are encouraged to do so. And the hashtag is hash LSE Islamists, all one word. <laughs> now, Professor Jerzys, he gained his doctorate here in the UK at Oxford, but he also has a very distinguished record of teaching and research based at US universities and has taught at Harvard, Columbia, and, and Oxford. Uh, he was a research scholar as well at Princeton and the chairholder of the Christian Johnson Chair in Middle Eastern Studies and International Affairs at the Sarah Lawrence College in New York. <coughs> Here at LSE, he is of course the director of LSE's new Middle East Center, and he's professor of Middle Eastern <coughs> Politics and International Relations, with the chair, the Emirates Chair of the Contemporary <coughs> Middle East. So it's no surprise that there's a big turnout this evening Given his expertise, given his standing, given his influence, and still his youth, or comparative youth, uh, he's going to tell you he's ailing tonight because he's got a cold, but uh, he's going to rise above that once he gets into his stride. And amongst his published works are The Rise and Fall of Al-Qaeda, Journey of the Jihadist Inside Muslim Militancy, and the far enemy, why jihad went global. So you couldn't ask for more than that as qualifications to tell us about the contemporary Islamist movement. Thank you. Shall I speak? Thank you, uh, Rosie. I'm really delighted to have you here uh, as a colleague and friend. And thank you for coming. I know uh, how busy all of you are, especially at dinner time. Uh, I think uh, I, I would not be exaggerating to say that for all of us who work on social movements in the Middle East, uh, in particular on Islamists, I think this is a very uh, historical moment, truly a historical moment for anyone else, you know, including probably you, uh, Rosie, because I think, uh, because I think uh, it is uh, an Islamist moment uh, par excellence. Uh, and I think, again, I'm not exaggerating if I say that Islamists will likely take ownership 
uh, most of the uh, Arab states in the next uh, one to five years, including uh, Tunisia, Egypt, uh, Morocco, uh, Libya very soon when elections take place, and probably Syria when and if elections uh, take place uh, after the ouster of President uh, Assad. Uh, not to mention Jordan uh, and other countries, and this tells you a great deal about the uh, social weight of the Islamists in Arab societies and Muslim societies. It's, it's also a special moment, an historical moment for us, because I think the coming to power of Islamists will help us uh, try to really make sense of some of the theories in uh, political science and international relations uh, about whether religiously-based uh, social movements, ideologically-based social movements like the Islamists have the capacity to evolve and transform themselves from ideological movements into interest-driven uh, groups. Uh, I don't need to tell you, and I don't have the time to flesh out the debate in the social sciences. I think there is a dominant narrative in the social sciences that basically stipulates that religious-based movement, religiously-based movements, Islamists in particular, are regressive ideological movements. They don't have the capacity to evolve uh, into uh, uh, interests-based uh, groups. Uh, and uh, I think uh, this particular narrative uh, has become very much reinforced, uh, reinforced uh, in the aftermath of 9-11 um, as a result of what happened, what transpired on 9-11 and the war on terror. There is a very deeply entrenched narrative uh, in the social sciences, particularly in the United States among American sci scientists, that all Islamists, not just uh, jihadists, uh, basically are uh, ideological agents, and it's very unlikely that such agents could transform themselves into uh, interest-based uh, social groups uh, and movements. And I think the literature in the social sciences uh, cite three basic cases, three basic examples to support this particular dominant approach. Uh, one case in particular, they say, look, the reason why Islamists uh, uh, cannot uh, basically evolve and transform themselves uh, into interest uh, uh, driven uh, groups is look what has happened in Iran uh, since the late 1970s uh, and 1980s. Iran and Sudan and Saudi Arabia are cited as examples to show, to say, that Islamists are very unlikely to evolve uh, to become uh, interest driven uh, social movements uh, like uh, the ones that exist in democratically uh, based states. The second example and the second case that's very much used in the literature is that they say look at the literature, look at the manifestos by the founding fathers of the Islamist movement. Uh, they go back as, as far as Abu Al al-Mawdudi and Hassan al-Banna and Sayyid Qutb and Ayatollah Khomeini and Abdullah Azzam, they lump them all together and say if you look at the ideal types, at the manifestos of the founding fathers you're going to see absolutist manifestos. Manifestos don't have the capacity for any kind of accepting uh, a diverse society, uh, do not respect uh, basically personal freedoms. Uh, the whole idea, the idea that was basically coined in America 
in the 1990s, one man, one vote, once. That once Islamists uh, seize power, reach power, basically it means the end of the political uh, process. The third case, and I'm just simplifying a great deal, please keep in mind, that's basically cited to against Islamists' capacity to evolve into interest-based uh, social movements is that they say, look at the violence and the terrorism perpetrated by some elements of the Islamists who subscribe to a particular aspect of Islamist ideology from the 1980s up to the present. They used the violence and terrorism as an example to say, not only Islamists cannot be trusted to basically come to power and relinquish power if they lose power, Islamists are basically violent ideological agents that cannot be trusted, uh, period. And again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think really 9-11 and the aftershocks of the 9-11 earthquake has reinforced this particular dominant narrative, in particular in, in the United States, in particular in some policy-oriented schools like John Hopkins um, and Georgetown and other places. And I think, again, I, I don't think I will be exaggerating if I say that uh, this particular, the, the terrorism narrative uh, substituted fear-mongering and uh, uh, anecdotes for rigorous uh, uh, research in the social sciences on uh, Islamists. I want to take five minutes to look really closely at the three cases cited by the paradigm that says Islamists are ideological regressive groups and they don't have the capacity to evolve uh, uh, based on the, the case studies that I just uh, cited. Let's look at the uh, Islamic revolution in Iran uh, uh, and what happened in Iran. First of all, the first point I want to make is that it matters a great deal how Islamists uh, reach power. It matters a great deal how Islamists uh, come to power. In Iran, it was a revolutionary process. The entire system uh, was ruptured, uh, and the mullahs, in particular a charismatic leader uh, called Ayatollah Khomeini, came to power and made the export of Islamic revolution basically the goal of the revolution itself. For many years, uh, exporting the Islamic revolution in Iran was a pivotal aspect of, the, uh, of Ayatollah Khomeini's uh, foreign policy uh, agenda. Um, this was a revolutionary Islamist uh, movement um, with a charismatic leader who embodied this particular, I mean the whole idea of exporting the Islamic uh, revolution. In the Arab world, if you take a look at what has happened in the Arab world in the last four decades, most of the Islamists, most, and I'm talking about the mainstream Islamists as opposed to radical and militant Islamists, I'm talking about the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in Egypt, I'm talking about uh, Al-Adl and Al-Ihsan um, in uh, Morocco, I'm talking about uh, 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 the Renaissance uh, Party, uh, Al-Nahda in Tunisia, I'm talking about the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in Jordan, uh, and also the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria. For the, for the last four decades, since the end of the 1960s and early 1970s, most, and I'm, I'm, I'm stressing, most of mainstream Islamists in the Arab world not only renounce violence as an instrument uh, of politics and religion, basically they have labored very hard in order to join the political process. For the last four decades, since the end of the 1960s 
and early 1970s. Not only they renounced violence, they have labored very hard to join the political process and gain legitima legitimation within their own uh, societies. Despite the fact, and again, I don't have the time to explain, I mean, uh, uh, the persecution and the harsh tactics basically used by uh, Arab regimes against the mainstream, mainstream Islamists in almost every uh, single country. So for four decades, the key strategy of mainstream Islamists from Egypt to Tunisia to Morocco to Jordan and other places has been integration, has been consolidation, has been gaining legitimation within their own societies, and of course they renounced violence as early as uh, the late uh, 1960s. Despite the fact, despite the fact that they were incarcerated, they were persecuted in almost every uh, single uh, country. And the fact is, what happened in Iran does not really apply to the Arab uh, world, because uh, in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Morocco, and now in Libya, not only the system remains, in, you have checks and balances, uh, um, unlike that of Iran, because the entire system, it was a revolutionary process. I want to go further than that and say, in fact, for many Arab Islamists in particular, uh, they look at the Iranian model as a failed model. In fact, the construction of a theocracy in Iran has really served to motivate Arab Islamists from Egypt to Tunisia to Morocco and other places to begin to think in different terms than building an Islamic state. The key word in Islamic societies now, Islamic, Islamist-based parties in the Arab world, is not building, is not the construction of an Islamic state. It's the construction of, they call it, al-Dawla al-Madaniya, civil state, because they are very fully aware of the negative connotation that the uh, uh, Islamic Republic in Iran uh, has in the Arab imagination. And truly, far from serving as a positive uh, uh, factor um, in, uh, uh, in the Islamist uh, worldview, in the Arab world, in fact, the Iranian model is seen as a failed model, and that's why, in fact, the Arab Islamists want to keep their distance from the entire notion of theocracy, theocracy as it was articulated by the uh, Islamic uh, Republic. I want to come back to, again, and I'm simplifying a great deal, I would be delighted to flesh out some of the points uh, um, I'm making uh, tonight. The second point is uh, let's look at some of the manifestos by the founding fathers of the Islamist movements, whether it's Abu al al Maududi or Hassan al-Banna or Sayyid Qutb. No doubts. If you look at some of the manifestos by the leading founding father of the Islamist movements, you're going to see a great deal of contradiction. In fact, tensions, contradictions, uh, what have you. Uh, and you might wonder why, for a variety of reasons, because these manifestos are ideal type manifestos, as opposed to operational manifestos. A few days ago, uh, 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 Sayyid Nasrallah uh, gave a speech in Lebanon about how the idea of an Islamic state uh, is used against Hezbollah in Lebanon. And Sayyid Nasrallah uh, uh, bluntly and publicly articulated the idea. He said, look, of course in the 1980s, we Hezbollah called for the establishment of an Islamic state. Uh, uh, but today, we have come to recognize almost the inability and almost the futility of trying even to envision an Islamic state in Lebanon itself, 
because of the diverse nature of Lebanese society, because Lebanese society cannot, I mean, you cannot live in such a diverse society and establish an Islamic state. Uh, and this is not the first time that Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, basically punctured hole in the ideal manifestos that was basically articulated and constructed by Hezbollah uh, in the 1980s. Similarly, many, if you interview, as we have some of us, some of the uh, rank and file of the Islamist movement in Egypt and other places, they go out of their way to say there is no dawla diniya in Islam. There is no religious-based state in Muslim history. Uh, they try to really keep a, a, a basic uh, critical difference, uh, and they argue that now most of the Islamists they call, as I said, for al-Dawla al-Madaniya, the civil state. Of course, there is no such thing as a civil state, as you know. There is either a secular state and a different and a, a theocracy type uh, state, like in Iran. But you might say, why do Islamists not basically talk about a secular state as opposed to a civil state? Because we don't have in the literature what does a civil state uh, mean? Uh, in the liturgy as opposed to a secular state. Again, I don't need to tell you that the idea, the, 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 the secular, the, the, the whole idea of secularism in Arab politics has terrible connotation because of its association with colonialism and westernization. And that's why even though Islamists go out of their way to say that we are not, uh, we have no intention of trying to establish Islamic states, they say we would like to establish civil states as opposed to uh, secular uh, states. What I am suggesting here is that we need to look at the uh, early manifestos of the founding fathers of the Islamist movement, not only as ideal types, but also within the context of the dynamic and evolving Arab and Muslim sociology and history. Arab societies and Islamists have evolved a great deal, and most of them acknowledge the fact that uh, there are different Asians than uh, uh, the ones that they existed in the 1930s and 1940s. And one of the reasons why the manifestos tend to be very absolutist and very, uh, you might say, very uh, uh, one-sided, uh, 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 because also of the anti-colonial nature of the entire Islamist discourse. Uh, these founding uh, fathers, these manifestos, really were designed to resonate with Muslim publics as really kind of mobilization against the so-called the uh, uh, cultural uh, uh, invasion and encroachment of Western uh, uh, colonialism uh, in Arab uh, and Muslim societies. So yes, the manifestos raise many questions about the divide between Islamist rhetoric and actions, but the manifestos on their own don't tell us a great deal about how Islamists will function when they uh, reach power in Arab uh, societies. The third case that's cited by some social scientists to show that Islamists don't have the capacity uh, to transform themselves into uh, interests-driven uh, social groups is the whole idea of the use of violence and terrorism by uh, Islamist groups uh, from in the 1940s, from the 1940s up to uh, 1990s. Again, I don't have the time to really talk about the secret apparatus that existed that, uh, uh, in Arab societies among Islamists from the 1940s to the present. I have written extensively about the various secret apparatus and the various uh, jihadists, uh, if I might use the term very loosely, uh, uh, 
But the reality is uh, a major divide uh, has always existed uh, uh, among Islamists. And that particular divide uh, was extremely, became very pronounced in the 1950s as a result of the major clash between the Arab nationalist movement or the Arab secular nationalist movement and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt from 1954 up to the end of the 1960s. I don't need, I mean, this is, this is a, a highly complex history. It's a history soaked in blood, truly, uh, in blood and grievances and pain. Uh, um, what happened in, in Nasser's uh, prisons between 1954 and 1970 uh, basically uh, uh, produced uh, tens of thousands of potential jihadis some of whom basically migrated to Afghanistan uh, in the 1980s and 1990s and uh, uh, changed the entire landscape of the uh, Islamist movement. But I think the basic divide within the Islamist movement in the late 1950s and 1960s lies between what I call a mainstream wing represented by the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood and the Qutbist uh, link, if part of, again, some of you, some of you know, uh, 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 Sayyid Qutb. Sayyid Qutb is the master ideologue of the revolutionary uh, wing within the Islamist movement. And Sayyid Qutb was incarcerated by President Gamal Abdel Nasser in 1954. He was tortured. Uh, Sayyid Qutb was one of the leading, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, thinker and theorist uh, within the Islamist movement even though he belatedly joined the movement. But Sayyid Qutb, while he was in Egyptian prison, he articulated a revolutionary uh, agenda, an agenda basically that in, in simple terms, uh, Sayyid Qutb uh, advocated hakimiyat, uh, Allah, the sovereignty of God. He believed that sovereignty belongs to God as opposed to the will of the people. And while in prison in the 1950s and 1960s, a major divide uh, emerged within the Islamist movement. On the one hand, you have what we call the Qutbists, the disciples of Qutb, who articulated a revolutionary discourse, and the mainstream Islamists who basically feared that Qutb himself could basically bring about the end of the Islamist movement. Uh, uh, and, and some of you, again, who, who have read, who have heard about Qutb, his most famous, if you really, if there's one particular text uh, uh, all of us should read, is Milestones. Uh, milestone is the uh, manifesto uh, for the sovereignty of God uh, constructed by Sayyid Qutb, and Milestone itself is based on a series of uh, uh, seminal texts by Sayyid Qutb called uh, In the Shadows of the Quran, uh, five texts authored by Sayyid Qutb while he was in jail. And the idea behind Milestone is that it's the sovereignty of God as opposed to the will of the people. Uh, the mainstream in the, 19, in the late 1950s and 1960s, the uh, mainstream wing within the Islamist movement realized the subversive nature of the Qutbian uh, revolutionary agenda, and they responded to Qutb. Uh, I mean, they, they produced a major uh, uh, manifesto, another manifesto in Arabic called Du'atun la Qudab, preachers, not judges. Uh, they said, you know, because they, they wanted to, to uh, basically respond to Sayyid Qutb uh, revolutionary manifesto by saying Islamists are not judges. They cannot judge uh, Muslims. Islamists are preachers. And this particular divide uh, really played a key role within the Islamist movement from the late 1950s up to, say, the late 1990s. You might say, why this is very important? 
it's very important because I think it's essential for us to understand the balance of forces within the Islamist movement itself. And truly, the 1960s and 1970s was the, uh, 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 I mean, high mark, was the climax of the revolutionary uh, Islamist alternative among Islamists. That Sayyid Qutb uh, disciples, while he was in prison, he was executed by Nasser in 1966, he basically produced a revolutionary alternative that articulated a revolutionary agenda and called for total revolution against the existing uh, political, social, and order in Muslim societies. And remember, Sayyid Qutb's uh, revolt was not just against the political order, it was also against the religious establishment itself. Sayyid Qutb believed that most of the religious establishment was an extension of the decadent, secular, uh, uh, Western-infected political establishment itself. And many of Qutb's students in the 1970s dominated Egyptian universities. Again, if some, some of you who know the history, uh, the 1970 was really the golden era of the revolutionary uh, Islamist alternative. Uh, and if there was a particular point by which the balance of forces had shifted in favor of the militant Islamist or the radical Islamist, it was the 1970s. Because the 1970s, some of us who work on the Islamist movement, uh, whether it was in the, uh, on the streets, in Upper uh, Egypt, uh, in Cairo, uh, uh, major think tanks, the mosque, truly uh, were dominated by this uh, great idea uh, uh, advocated by uh, Sayyid Qutb. The irony is the 1970s also witnessed the beginning of the end of the revolutionary alternative among Islamists. Uh, even, even some of the disciples of Sayyid Qutb in the 1970s looked nostalgically at the 1970s as a squandered, wasted moment. They realized because they became too reckless, they became, they decided, they plunged, they, they, they thought that they somehow they could take on the existing political and social order and they decided to use uh, uh, blood and iron in order to basically uh, 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 take over uh, the existing system and replace the secular system with God's sovereignty, um, uh, that is the sovereignty of God. I think the uh, assassination of Sadat uh, in uh, 1981 truly uh, uh, represented the beginning of the end of the revolutionary moment within the Islamist uh, paradigm. And of course you might say, what are you talking about? I mean, look what uh, has transpired after 1981. I mean, think of how much blood was shed between 1981 and even up to the present. Uh, I mean, the birth of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, Al-Gama'a al-Islamiyah, the Egyptian group in Egypt, the Algerian Civil War. I mean, the Islamists basically revolt in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, in Algeria, culminating in Afghanistan, and of course, the birth of Al-Qaeda, 9-11, and what have you. I'm not denying all of that, that's not the question. But I would argue that one of the major failures of the revolutionary alternative among Islamists was inability to create, construct a viable social base within Muslim societies. But the fact is, by, 19, by the end of the 1980s, early 1990s, most Muslims in Egypt, in Algeria, and other places came to realize that even though the secular existing order, the political order, was bankrupt, Islamists did not have a blueprint for the morning after. 
And that's why the Islamists, the, the radical Islamists, were defeated on the battlefield in the late 1990s, but I think they were defeated because they, they could not win the hearts and minds of Muslims. And I would argue that basically the sound of battles between 1981 and the present really blinded most of us, even to the changing and shifting of balance of powers within the Islamist movement itself. That is, while the existing regimes in Algeria, in Egypt, in Afghanistan, and the US war on terror, really so much ink and so much blood was spilled as a result of this war against both the near enemy and the far enemy, mainstream Islamists, mainstream Islamists, were basically positioning themselves to inherit the spoils of the fight between the militant Islamists and the secular existing political regimes in almost every country. They were investing serious, considerable political capital in the societies. They were in terms of networks, in terms of, it was really in terms of consolidation, expansion, survival, where the key terms that most Islamist parties and groups were basically trying to achieve in every society. While, I mean, these battles taking place, Islamists were concentrated in almost concentrating in every society on building these networks, on investing. That's, I'm not just talking about welfare. I'm talking about, I mean, uh, associations, long, uh, uh, I'm talking about universities, I'm talking about uh, uh, families, I'm talking about uh, countryside, I'm talking about the urban poverty belts. Islamists throughout the Arab world were investing considerable social capital in really consolidating their movement, consolidating their weight, and positioning themselves for the moment when basically they can really cash in. And that's why I and many others basically and, and I'm sure many of you here, we are not really surprised by the ability of the Islamists to basically garner uh, between uh, 40 and 70 percent of votes in almost every single parliament in the Arab world. I, I, to use a, an anecdote, they are cashing in on the social investment, on the social capital that they basically have been doing in the last uh, four uh, decades. And I think they, they, they position themselves to basically uh, for the moment when the system, and of course, uh, they really, in, ma in many, in almost every single country, uh, mainstream Islamists as opposed to radical and militant Islamists were seen as the alternative to a very corrupt and very decadent and very failed uh, social and political order uh, uh, in the region. Of course, it's very early, as you know, to speculate on how Islamists will basically govern. I mean, it's too early. And as I suggested to you, Iran is not the example. Sudan is not an example. Saudi Arabia is not an example by which we can really judge, use as a yardstick to really assess Islamists' uh, uh, conduct uh, 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 in the Arab world. But I want to put some tentative ideas on the table. I, this is really, I've spent most of my time so far talking about history uh, in a very anecdotal way. Now I want to really address the, 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 the substance of my, of my uh, topic, and I want to put some ideas on the table, and I hope you take them apart at the end of my, my presentation. I think the first point I want to make, based on the history, looking at the history, at, at the movement, the history of the, the movement from the 1930s up to the present, based on the turmoil that has taken place in this movement, based on the balance of social forces within these, uh, this movement, I think increasing evidence shows uh, that uh, the social balance of forces has shifted towards the pragmatists among Islamists. 
there is no doubt in my mind, and again, this is not an original point I'm making, that there is a generational shift among Islamists in almost every single Arab country. And this generational shift favors basically pragmatists, professionals, open-minded reformists who are willing to basically construct alliances not only with other Islamists, but also liberal uh, and secular uh, forces. And I think this particular generation, pragmatists and reformists, they are not as obsessed with identity politics as their, their predecessors. They really tend to be open-minded. Uh, and uh, I would argue that they have uh, many liberal tendencies when it comes to their perception and worldview, what governance is all about uh, in uh, Arab societies. I'm not suggesting, when I say a generational shift has taken place within the Islamist movement or movements favoring pragmatists, I'm not suggesting that ultra-conservative, die-hard uh, elements are not powerful in, uh, among Islamists. Uh, in Egypt, if you look at uh, Ashura Council, uh, uh, you see the old guard basically exercise considerable influence even uh, within the Muslim Brotherhood itself. But my argument, the old guard, the dinosaurs are a dwindling minority, a dying minority, and the generation of the 1970s, the 1970 generation that joined the mainstream Islamist movement as opposed to joining the radical, militant uh, wings, tend to be open-minded, tend to be reformist, tend to be willing to construct alliances with other forces in societies. The second point I want to make is that although Islamists' outlook and worldview differ from one country to another, surely uh, al-Ikhwan in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, is not the same as al-Nahda in Tunisia. Al-Nahda also differs a great deal from the Islamists in Morocco and Jordan. But I would argue, and I hope some of you uh, will take me to task on this, it's fair to say that most Islamists, the overwhelming majority of Arab Islamists, the overwhelming majority, accept the rules of the political game and the idea of citizenship. They accept the idea of citizenship as the key element in governance in Arab society, that is, and the will of the people as opposed, as opposed to al-Hakimiyya, the sovereignty of God. Uh, that is, there is no mainstream Islamist. I have never met and I have been working on really all types of Islamists for the last 25 years. I have truly, and I'm not, it's not about, uh, I have not heard uh, a single uh, uh, voice among Islamists who says, basically, I don't accept the idea of citizenship, even though when it comes, and I'll talk about some of the nuances and some of the illiberal tendencies that still exist, but the idea of the sovereignty of God is no longer subscribed to by any Islamist I know within the mainstream uh, Islamist uh, movement. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that we are seeing signs of maturity and sophistication. Uh, and uh, uh, they have made it very clear, I mean, across the board, from Egypt to Tunisia to Morocco to Jordan, even the Brotherhood in, uh, in Syria and the Islamists in Libya, they have made it very uh, clear. They will not take reckless decisions. They will not try to violate the accepted the uh, consensus in their uh, societies. They will not force constitutions on their people. They will go out of their way to accommodate differing and diverse peoples. And more importantly, 
Islamist al-Ikhwan in particular, they have made it very clear more than once they will respect the personal freedoms, the individual freedoms of all citizens. I think a major concession, it tells us a great deal about how Islamists uh, remember. We're still talking about the rhetoric as opposed to, because we don't have any kind of, this is, this is basically uh, the beginning of an Islamist era, and we're trying to assess uh, basically how they evolved in the last four decades and what they, when, where they're going uh, from here. Uh, uh, but I would argue, even though you're going to hear a great deal of bickering about the nature of the Constitution, the, the constitutions, uh, about the type of government that exists in the Arab societies, most of the constitutions in the Arab world, including Egypt, Tunisia, and Morocco, and what have you, they will likely reflect a spirit of pluralism as opposed of liberalism. That most of the constitutions, will constitutions take into account diverse diversity in Arab societies, the idea of personal and individual freedoms, uh, religious tolerance, uh, and religious diversity. Um, uh, and in this particular sense, I think this is a, a major, major development. It tells us a great deal about how far Islamists uh, uh, have evolved uh, in the last uh, uh, four uh, decades. Uh, you might say, why should we trust the Islamists? Why should we trust the whole idea, the one man, one vote, uh, once? Look what happened in Iran. My uh, Islamists, I don't need to tell you, they're not really uh, dumb uh, Asian. They realize that they came to power through the ballot box. They realize there are checks and balances that they cannot hijack the revolts in their own societies. They also realized they were voted in. Most of the studies so far that we have seen, they were voted in not to establish Islamic-based Emirates. They were voted in because the voters in Arab societies wanted to make a clean break with the failed old order. Uh, because again, I don't need to tell you, Islamists are trusted, they are more genuine, they're more authentic, uh, they live among the people. I mean, again, I don't have the time to explain to you the difference between uh, uh, the reason why liberal and secular elements uh, failed and failed dismally to garner any major votes uh, in Arab politics uh, for the simple reason. Uh, uh, liberal uh, forces in the Arab world, the message does not resonate. It's it perceived to be as an elitist message. Uh, it does not resonate with your uh, local constituencies. Uh, liberal voices and parties uh, have not been able to really make inroads uh, into Arab societies for a variety of reasons. They spend most of their times uh, on Al Jazeera and Arabia and their air-conditioned offices in Cairo. Uh, they really do. Uh, while if you, if you want to meet Islamists, you have to go to, uh, I mean, the various neighborhoods in Egypt. You have to go to Al-Sharqiyya, you have to go to Al-Sa'id, you have to go to various uh, where Islamists live. They live among the people. They have invested considerable capital in their local communities over the last. They are seen, they are trusted. Uh, they are trusted to deliver uh, the goods by whether they deliver or not, that's a different question. Uh, so, in this particular sense, what I'm trying to say is that Islamists know that they are voted in because they have made promises to uh, constituencies. Uh, and I think. If I am correct, I mean, I, and I, the point, the big point I, I want to highlight later on at the end of my, uh, you, can, you can see that, uh, I mean, the, the Islamists on the whole, we estimate 
that the strength of the Islamist movement, the hardcore, is between 18 and 25 percent in almost every Arab society, if we, from Egypt to Tunisia to Jordan, uh, give and take. Yet, uh, Islamists basically have won between 45 percent and 70 percent of the seats. And this tells you that uh, uh, almost 20 percent, more than 20 percent, of their uh, constituents basically are non-Islamists. Uh, and again, this also uh, sends a very powerful message to Islamist parties uh, about constituencies and about interests and about the fact that they have to uh, deliver uh, on their uh, promises. Uh, the third point I want to make, uh, <coughs> although attitudes toward the West, I mean, you might ask a question about how do Islamists view uh, the West? I mean, uh, a great deal of ink has been spilled. Will the Islamists in Egypt basically uh, uh, respect the Camp David Treaty? Will they try to basically uh, veer to the ultra-right? Uh, will they become uh, anti-Western? Because the manifesto cited by some security experts tend to be very much anti-Western in terms of foreign policy. <clears throat> Again, I don't need to tell you that there is a bitter legacy between the Western powers and not just Islamists, Arab and Muslim societies on the whole. Almost a hundred years of, of, of uh, uh, bitter encounter uh, has left deep scars, deep scars that will basically take many years to heal. Uh, Islamists are not the only Asians who basically tend to be very deeply suspicious of Western foreign policies. In this particular sense, if we're looking for uh, a sea change overnight, I think we'll be uh, wasting our time. Uh, I think change will be gradual uh, and over time. But I think I am myself, I and many others, are really struck by the nuanced and complex rhetoric coming out of Islamists. I mean, think the first thing that the Muslim Brotherhood did after they won the elections in Egypt. They made it very clear. They will not take any reckless decisions on foreign policy. They will not abrogate the Camp David Treaty as long as Israel respects the Camp David Treaty. They will basically go out of their way to respect uh, the diplomatic uh, pacts and treaties assigned by their countries. Uh, I mean, these are, they tells you a great deal that Islamists basically, the maturity, how mature Islamists uh, have uh, become. In his first meeting, in their first meeting with the second man in the State Department, Al-Ikhwan in Egypt, uh, they met with William Burns, the second man in the State Department. They basically lectured Mr. Burns on not doing enough in Syria. Can you imagine the Muslim Brotherhood al-Ikhwan wanting the United States to take concrete, material, physical actions against President Assad? Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria is veering more and more now trying to advocate Western military intervention um, against, in Syria. In Libya, the Islamists embrace, fully embrace NATO intervention. Some of us a year ago, I would have never, I don't know about you, I would have never imagined the Islamists calling on the United States and the West to basically intervene militarily in their societies to topple their own regimes. It would have been, let me give you an idea about the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria. During the height of the, the war in Iraq, the Muslim Brotherhood made a major statement. It says, we suspend our historical grievance and fight with the Syrian regime because the Syrian regime was resisting American imperialism in the region. This was the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood in 2005 made a public statement. He said, 
we basically now we have a ceasefire with the Syrian government because the Syrian government now is resisting American imperialism in Iraq and the region. The same man now is calling on the Western powers to intervene in Syria. What I'm trying to say is that a, a subtle change seems to be taking place in how Islamists not only view the West, but even in the tolerance that Islamists now entertain vis-a-vis -vis Western intervention in their societies. Ironically, we were discussing with my students tonight. Ironically now, three, two days ago, you have the leader of Al-Qaeda, Ayman Zawahiri, and the United States on the one hand calling for the toppling of the Assad regime. Uh, I mean, it's, it's ironic. It's truly ironic, and it tells you, I mean, Afghanistan, it reminds us of the, of the Afghanistan period, while Islamists and the Western powers were on the same page, basically uh, uh, against, of course, the evil empire, and now against the evil dictators who have bled their societies uh, dry. Another point I want to make, what I'm trying to suggest, is that even vis-a-vis -vis the West, we are seeing a subtle and important shift on the part of mainstream Islamists, not just towards how they view the West, in their tolerance and acceptance and advocacy, uh, uh, wanting the West to intervene uh, on their side in the fierce struggle uh, unfolding in the Arab world. Economy. What kind of, what kind of economic uh, uh, agenda do the Islamists uh, have? I don't have plenty of time, that's why I'm raising. Uh, <coughs> there is no I, I, I don't need to tell you, there is no specific Islamist economic model. There is no such thing. Uh, that is, uh, but just to give you an idea in a very anecdotal way, when we talk about economics and Islamists, uh, I mean, I think the Islamist movement, again, from across the board, it's a bourgeois movement. It's a middle class movement. Uh, that is, on the whole, uh, if there is one particular key that explains really Islamists' uh, worldview, towards uh, uh, economics is Islam is good for business. Uh, they're merchant. No, no, no. They're merchant. I mean, they're middle class. Uh, uh, in fact, if you read today, uh, one of the leading columnists in, in uh, Al-Quds al-Arabi, uh, his name is Abdel Halim Qandil. And Abdel Halim Qandil is a relatively nationalist Islamist uh, uh, commentator. Uh, he, is, he is vehemently critical of the Muslim Brotherhood because he says they remind him of the Mubarak era, their advocacy of liberal economic policies. They're trying to help maintain the same economic system. Uh, well, Abdel Halim Qandir, right or wrong, the reality is uh, Islamists, whether in Egypt or Tunisia and other places, are uh, basically merchants. They're middle class, they're bourgeois movement. They feel at home with liberal economics as opposed to socialism, of course. Uh, you're going to hear a great deal about social justice. You're going to hear a great deal about redistribution. They're going to wrap their, their policy, economic policies with, uh, they legitimize their economic policies. But don't expect, again, any radical shift in the economic policies of Islamist state, of Islamist-based uh, government in, uh, in every Arab uh, country. Uh, it's more of the same. Uh, this is a merchant class, uh, uh, a bourgeois movement, a movement that basically uh, basically would like, I mean, it, most of the Islamists are good merchants, they're good businessmen. Um, if you look at the top leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood, they're all multimillionaires. Uh, truly, uh, uh, this tells you a great deal. And if you look at the social, the genealogy 
of the Muslim Brotherhood. It's a middle class, upper middle class, and they take pride in that. Uh, um, they have no uh, uh, kind of complexities when it comes to, and again, in the first meeting with the second man in the State Department, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, went out of its way to say, not only we want American money, we're going to go to the IMF, we are willing to work within international economic uh, institutions. Uh, what, I mean, the big point here, and again, I don't have the time to talk about uh, just the economics, but also, uh, I mean, take a look at, at uh, giving much time, I'm grateful to you. Uh, uh, I mean, I, again, take a look at what has happened within Hamas in the last uh, eight or nine, month, nine months now. Think of the impact that the rise of the Islamists has had on Hamas and the moderating influence that the Islamists have had on Hamas. Uh, now, Hamas leaders uh, openly and publicly uh, talk about basically suspending, suspending uh, the armed struggle uh, uh, against Israel and using al-muqawm al-shabiyya, popular resistance as opposed to uh, armed struggle. Uh, many Hamas leaders openly and publicly confess, acknowledge the fact that the rise of the Islamists has given them a strategic depth, that the rise of the Islamists in the Arab world has also taught them a good lesson, that the fact is they have to behave differently, that they, don't, they, they should not behave in the same way in terms of adoption of the repressive measures even at home itself. Uh, uh, truly, we are seeing a major subtle change within Hamas itself as a result of the rise of mainstream Islamists uh, in uh, Arab uh, societies, in particular uh, uh, in Egypt. Uh, even though I, I, I hope I have not given you, I mean, a, a rosy picture of, of uh, I mean, Islamists, and I don't need to tell you this, they're not, uh, I mean, uh, born again Democrats. Uh, no, 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 no. I mean, this is, they're not, uh, when it comes to women, on the question of women, uh, there's a big, huge debate unfolding within the Islamist movement, uh, whether women can be judges, magistrates, or whether somehow women can be uh, presidents, or a cop can be president. Uh, that there are Islamists across the board, there is a huge debate unfolding. Uh, you have many illiberal tendencies. Uh, uh, they suffer from illiberal tendencies, and we're going to see in the next few years a great deal of debate on the question of women, on the question of minorities, and what have you. But I am not disturbed at all uh, by the fact that when I say Islamists are not really uh, liberal Asians. That's, I would like them to be liberal Asian, that's not the question. But to me, the big question for me, are Islamists willing to institutionalize the political process? Are Islamists willing to accommodate the interests of their constituencies. And on both scores, uh, scores, yes, absolutely. And that's what matters to me. Because they are willing to institutionalize the political process. They are engaged in the institutionalization of the political process in the same way that the Islamists in Turkey have been deepening and thickening the institutionalization process. I would argue one of the major products of the rise of the Islamists in the Arab world will be the institutionalization of the political process. And that's excellent news for us, because the big debates will take place within the institutional frameworks. Remember, I mean, uh, even the American founding fathers were not liberal. Uh, uh, so the, the, the yardstick, when we judge the Islamists, we should not judge the Islamists on whether they are liberal agents or not. 
who judge the Islamists, are they willing to institutionalize the, the political process and play by the rules of the game? My take on it is that their interest, their very survival, depends on the institutionalization process. They want to protect their own movement. Their interests lie in the thickening institu institutionalization of their societies because they have suffered a great deal in the last four decades. They were at the mercy of repressive security apparatus, and they realized that institutionalization served their interests in the long term. Finally, uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I, I said I, I used the term uh, an Islamist moment. Uh, I didn't, uh, there is no Islamist system. There is no, we're not talking about an Islamist model yet. And I don't think Islamists, they're talking about an Islamist. Uh, I would argue that the fortune of the Islamists in the Arab world, from Egypt to Morocco to Jordan, will depend on two things. On whether, basically, uh, they live up to their promises and the, the pledges that they have basically put on the table for their constituencies. I mean, I think, and whether they can deliver the goods. I mean, that's the reality. Uh, because if my reading is correct, if more than 20% of the people who voted for the Islamists, more than 20%, that basically they have uh, constituencies they have to care about and they have to deliver the goods at the end of the day. Uh, and I think in this particular sense, I fear, and this is where I mean, I, 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 where, and I hope some of you uh, again will, 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 will take me to task on this particular sense, I'm not very confident that the Islamists will be able to deliver the goods in Arab societies for two basic reasons so far. First of all, even though the Islamists have spent four decades consolidating uh, their social base uh, and basically building social networks, I don't think the Islamists have spent a great deal of time in terms of articulating and constructing blueprints, either in terms of socioeconomic and political blueprints. I mean, even today, we are trying to think what are the ideas, what are the key uh, what's, what's, what's the key or the keys that help us unlock uh, uh, the economies or the economics of the Islamist movement? Uh, and while the body of the Islamist movement has expanded at a fast rate since the 1970s, I think uh, the brain power has not really kept pace with the expansion of the body itself. And here I, I worry a great deal for not just for Islamists, but even for Arab societies because I don't think the Islamists have the idea so far and the blueprints to address the major challenges. And this brings me to my second, is that the challenges are great. I don't need to tell you, we don't have the time to talk about the challenges facing Egypt and, and, and Morocco and Tunisia, institutional challenges, socioeconomic challenges, the fragmentation of the political class. The challenges are truly tremendous. Um, and given the fact that uh, the paucity of ideas and the nature of challenges I think the jury is out, and that's why I think this is a moment, and we'll see in the next five years whether the Islamists will be able to deliver the goods or not. Thank you. Terrific. Plenty of opportunity to take up some of the themes. I'm going to ask that you put your questions very succinctly so that we can get as many in as possible. And I'm going to ask uh, Professor Fawaz Jajas uh, that he be as succinct as possible in his answers. 
Can you also say who you are and if your affiliation is relevant? And uh, we've got two over here, so a microphone, three over here. So we'll start with these three, one after another. The microphone's on its way. We're going to finish on the dot of eight o'clock. It's always good that people go away wanting more. And uh, I shall make an announcement about the next lecture. What, what's happened to the microphone? Uh, no, thank actually, you, there were these three here, sorry, in the middle bunch. Gentleman on the aisle. Yep, that's it, and then diagonally down from there. Hi there, uh, my name's Nabil. Um, part of your title says uh, the geostrategic implications, right? So uh, my question is here, uh, some of the geostrategic implications, I feel one of the major implications that you have left out or might not have mentioned is the implication for Israel. I mean, uh, Israel plays a, a huge part in the Middle East. Uh, you haven't talked about that much. Uh. Okay. Thanks. Go for it. Take one by one. Thank you, by the way. And I, I uh, it's, a, it's a very pivotal question. Um, and particularly for Islamists, uh, this is an identity question for almost every single Islamist movement. Uh, the first thing that in the first meeting with William Burns, uh, the leader of Freedom and Justice made, made it very clear that if the United States would like to basically um, be, uh, have friendly relations with Egypt, the first thing that the United States must have a balanced foreign policy towards the Arab-Israeli conflict. I mean, that was, that was one of the major points. Uh, Rashid Ghanoushi, when, uh, when he went to Washington, Again, he stressed this particular point that unless Palestine, unless the question of uh, unless the Palestinian state is established, Palestine will poison, will continue to poison relations not just between Islamists um, and Western powers, uh, but between Arab societies, Muslim societies, and Western societies. Um, it is an identity question, um, and make no doubts about it. If uh, I mean, particularly if a Palestinian state is not established in the next four or five years, Islamists will uh, make turn Palestine into a critical, uh, uh, I mean, issue in relations with the United States uh, and the West. And it's bound to become a critical issue given the fact that there is polarization. Uh, ironically, though, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, according to some Hamas leaders, have really stressed the importance of moderation. They have impressed on Hamas leaders uh, the need uh, for restraint. The need to restrain the more radical elements in Gaza, in particular, um, and also in terms of trying to uh, make inroads vis-à-vis -vis the international community. Um, so, in this particular sense, I think that the rise of the Islamists uh, will play uh, Palestine will, will be a key point, a key foreign policy issue uh, for the Islamists. But again, I mean, I Leave it at that. yeah, just one point because one of the points. I tried to say in my lecture was that even on Palestine, the Islamists have gone out of their way to say that we will not take a radical, we will not be radically different from the previous regimes. We will not act recklessly and unilaterally. And this goes to show that how, I mean, uh, interest-based the Islamists are, because you would have expected them to say, on Palestine, we'll take different positions. They have not said so, so far. Thanks. Next row down, yeah. Yeah, um, have you thought about the point of Could comparison? Could you tell us who you are, please? Oh, sorry, uh, my, my name is Gary Mohan. I'm an alumnus of LSE. Um, have you thought about the point of comparison with Northern Ireland? 
the, the, reason, the reason I bring that up is there seems to be a blind spot in Western scholarship um, around the fact that there's been 400 years of religiously based politics in Ireland and that somehow the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland aren't closely associated with the, Presbyterian, the Free Presbyterian Church in Northern Ireland. I'm wondering if, if you thought about that. Well, actually, the, the model we have is the religious-based movements in Western societies uh, and how they evolved over the last you know, 300 years. And that's really, in many ways, uh, the, 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 the key point. The conceptual framework, the comparative perspective, should be with the religious-based movements in Europe itself and how they evolved over the years. They evolved because they transformed themselves from being ideological movements into interest-constituent-driven uh, uh, movements over the years, uh, in particular the church. And it seems to me, and that's why it's too early, I, I insinuated that we might be witnessing a similar shift uh, among Islamists. And if I dare to say we might be witnessing the secularization of Islamist politics over the next decade or so. Uh, we have seen so in Turkey itself. That is, uh, really, uh, Islamist is more of a cover, is more of a legitimation uh, framework. Uh, I mean, politics, because in, in when you have institutions, uh, it, it's secular, uh, period, even though you say it's a civil as opposed to secular. Uh, if, again, if, if our reading is correct, if my reading is correct, um, I think we might be talking about the Islamists in the Arab world in the same way that we're talking about really Turkish politics now. Uh, and no one can suggest, no one suggests that, except this very small, tiny fringe, that somehow Turkish politics is Islamist now, that Erdogan foreign policy or domestic politics is driven by an Islamist vision as opposed to really an institutionalized, secular interest-driven vision. So it's not just, uh, I mean, Ireland, it's Europe itself. Should really, I should have started uh, I mean, my, my presentation by saying, I mean, let's take a look at Europe and how the religiously based European uh, movements evolved over the years. And it seems to me we're witnessing a similar process here. In However, don't try it now no. because, <laughs> because I think there's a lot of questions about yes. what you did say. Yes. I, uh, I'm Elisa Safarazi. I'm Iranian. I've studied at the University of Leeds. Um, since you mentioned the case of Iran, uh, it's a common assumption among uh, many Iranians that uh, we, we're going to see the same thing that happened in Iran in many Arab countries. First is the promise of freedom and its promise of actually progress in all aspects. And then uh, for many reasons and for many excuses, they're going to push towards radicalism and they go back towards what they say, the principles. First, they promise freedom for in many aspects. Even in hijab, they promise that it's absolute freedom for anyone who wants, we, they can keep their hijab, simplest things. But after one or two years, they ten, turn out to be the most actually horrendous radical figures in the world. Can, okay. can you tell us about evolution of the movement, especially since you said they're not going to be able to meet some of the economic challenges? Exactly, exactly. that's the problem, because they, they first, they, after two or three years, they realized that, okay, we don't have any idea about economy, about the new societies. We got it, okay. And the, we're going to come over there. Yes, the, the woman there, after you answer this one. Oh, no. Shall we absolutely correct. I mean, I think the jury is out, and we have to wait and see how Islamists basically function uh, uh, while uh, in governments. Uh, I am 
uh, a bit hopeful because what I, I hope, what I have uh, tried to get across to you is that it's not, this is a not, not a tactical shift. Uh, this is more of a generational shift. That the old guard, the ultra-conservative, the dinosaurs are really dwindling now. If you meet, if you go and meet uh, Arab Islamists uh, and you talk to them, uh, it is, I mean, they're walking a similar journey to their Turkish counterparts. They're not there yet. Uh, there's a great debate taking place uh, within the Islamist movement. And you're right, they're socially conservative. Uh, on the question of hijab, on the question of women, I mean, this is a, um, you know, some of them say, uh, women is the, our last line of defense. That's how, how uh, it, it is a very, very uh, important question. Uh, the question of, a uh, particular question of women. Uh, and on this particular question, and I, I, I hope made it very clear, I mean, they display very illiberal tendencies. Uh, uh, that's a reality. Uh, uh, well, do you, think, do you think in your analysis that the economic challenges, which are pretty insuperable, given the resource demographic bases in a lot of these countries, will be what drives some of these Islamists to more hardline policies when they can't deliver with their moderation? Well, I mean, that's, that's I mean, I'm, the question, I, let me, let me turn, turn it on it head and say, I'm very concerned by the enormity of the socioeconomic challenges, and my fear is that the military, as opposed to the Islamists, uh, that's really my fear, because I think if I know a bit about the history of the movement and the persecution that we went through, they're desperate to be uh, legalized, they're desperate to, be, to gain legitimation, they're desperate to become part and parcel of the system. Uh, truly, uh, I'm not worried about, I mean, the mainstream Islamists, because the Salafis are hyper and, and uh, they just basically, they have been uh, underground for many years and, and now it's anything that comes to mind. They're, I mean, they're evolving in a similar way, but it's going to take many years. But I'm not worried about uh, Al-Mahda in Tunisia or the brothers in terms of hijacking. I'm worried about if they don't basically tackle the challenges, as most probably they won't be able to, given the, I mean, again, uh, we're talking theoretical Egypt today, I don't need to tell you it's a backdrop state. Uh, institutional building will take 10, 20 years. Uh, how do you, I mean, you have 43% of Egyptians who live below the poverty line, other than the poverty below the poverty line. Uh, turmoil, I mean, the whole society, you have the question of empowerment. Uh, huge, I mean, the aspirations are very high, why? 70% uh, of Egyptians say that they expect their life to be improved in the next year. While we know it's going to be, uh, I mean, uh, the, the, the reverse way. Uh, so this is really where the challenges are. And that's why I think uh, as long as the institutionalization takes place, that's what really the, the yardstick. And I'm hoping that the Islamists in the Arab world, because in their interest, will play a critical role in the institutionalization process. Because once they do, all the debates, all the challenges will take place within the framework itself. Now we don't have institutions. We have fragile institutions or no institutions whatsoever. Uh, but the question is, what will happen between now and when you build institutions? Because institutional building uh, takes decades. I don't need to tell you. It's, it's not a matter of months or years. Uh, it's a matter of decades. Uh, even in the case of Turkey, it, it took Turkey five decades to do so. So yes, but I'm not worried 
to, to be blunt, I'm not worried about the Islamists basically, uh, uh, I mean, hijacking the system. I'm worried about a combination either of the military and the Islamists basically trying to uh, create an unholy alliance and, 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 and govern in a very undemocratic way. Okay. So we've got one woman there, and another one nearer the front, and another one here. Please. Um, my name's Melissa, I'm from The Elders, and I'm, you've sort of addressed it in that, in that answer, but my question involves women, and how you see women playing a role in the Islamist movement. I mean, we see in Tunisia, women have been incorporated, in, their rights have been incorporated in the constitution, yet I think there's concerns in Egypt that they're going to continue to be marginalised. I wonder whether you can elaborate. They really are. I mean, I, I think, uh, I'm glad you asked me the question. Uh, even the Muslim Brotherhood has gone out of its way to co-opt women. Uh, ironically, even the Salafis, the Salafis, as you know, the ultra-conservative Islamists, initially they did not have any uh, women faces on the uh, flyers. Uh, but after some criticism, after they were criticized, they basically relented. And women were basically, uh, I mean, uh, now the part of their own, uh, I mean, <coughs> parliamentary uh, delegation. Uh, and this tells you a great deal about socialization. Uh, look, I mean, I, I, I want to be blunt. Uh, I think what we need to understand the debate, not just among Islamists, on the whole, Arab societies and Arab public is much more conservative than we give it, give it credit to. Uh, I think most of us want to, or probably have a particular that somehow the awakenings would bring about a liberal-minded constituency or will usher in a liberal-minded political class. That's not going to happen because, uh, I mean, conservatism is deeply entrenched, social conservatism. And, and women, on the question of women, I mean, if you go to Egypt, Egypt at the early part of the 20th century was much more liberal-minded when it came to women than it is today. Uh, Seventy percent, and that's, that's not, it's not bad when we say women are failed. I mean, this is, um, even in Beirut, if you go to Damascus, I mean, there has been a, 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 uh, a trend uh, uh, that basically when it comes to women, uh, and I think to my mind, uh, this is across the board. I think the question of the empowerment, that's what I am, uh, I mean, will women be empowered in Arab societies? Uh, but now we're serving parliaments in Egypt, and not as many as I would like to see. Uh, uh, but again, uh, I want uh, the question of, of uh, uh, I mean, uh, empowerment to be institutionalized. I want, and that's what I'm saying, if it's institutionalized, uh, that's exactly what I want. I want to make sure that uh, women have the legal right to do whatever they want. Uh, and I think on this, this is where the debate's going to take place in the new constitutions, and you'll see. Because the, the Islamists, because they, want, they have a, a hardcore constituency, they want to say that on the question of women being a judge, we cannot, I mean, compromise on this. Or on the question of women being running for president, we cannot compromise. So you're going to see uh, great battles waged on the question of identity. And identity, again, unfortunately, has to do really mostly with women questions. Ironically here, that Islamists have been much more forthcoming on minorities when it comes to Christians. Now, I mean, even the Muslim Brotherhood, almost 100% for citizenship. I mean, uh, uh, because initially there were some, um, I mean, uh, Muslim Brothers wavered on the question of whether uh, a cop can be president or not. Uh, they seem to have relented on this question now. But on the question of women, 
it seems to me uh, on the, the legal rights, the empowerment, I think the jury is still out. We have to wait and see what the constitutions uh, say in the next few months. Okay, please. Hi, my name is Shireen. I'm Palestinian, doing a degree in art psychotherapy. You've kind of answered a bit of my question just now, but um, there has been a rise in Islamic movements in the Arab world, in the culture especially. My question is, where do you see societies in the next few years? Because let's say in Palestine, it's much more religious than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago when it comes to not just the hijab, just like in every aspect, in every way of life. What's, what's the future of people's mentalities and uh, when it comes to religion especially? Is it going to become more religious because of these movements or are people now more liberated with the revolutions? And Again, thank you for your question because I think uh, we, we seem to be talking about the Islamist top-down as somehow Islamists can be divorced. In case you didn't hear at the back, the question was about what about bottom-up, the society manifesting a trend towards more conservatism. And, and this has been really, th 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 this has been one of the major structural changes in Arab societies in the last 30 years, is what I call the bottom up. Uh, and Islamists, basically as Asians, were positioned and basically played into, because they're conservative Asians as well. Even the pragmatists, and I hope you didn't I hope I did not mislead you anyway. Even the pragmatists among Islamists tend to be very social, socially conservative when it comes to their daughters and their wives. I mean, that's the reality. Uh, Arab societies on the whole have become much more conservative. And if I might really Islamicize from the bottom up. Um, and that's why even if a person in Cairo or Upper Egypt, even if he or she is not an Islamist, feels much more comfortable voting for an Islamist movement. Uh, uh, because the message of the Islamists now resonates with a larger segment, uh, whether in, in Palestine or whether even in Lebanon or Jordan or what have you. Um, and, and I think this is raises big questions about, uh, I mean, uh, religion is not a bad thing. Please, we, we, we have to be clear. It's not a bad thing at all. That's not the question. Uh, what we're saying is that why Arab societies have become much more conservative? and why Islamization from the bottom up, across the board. Uh, and ironically, across the classes. In fact, uh, even the upper classes in Arab societies have their own uh, uh, religious uh, preachers and clerics and their own rituals. Um, every classes. In fact, uh, the bourgeoisie class in the Arab world has labored very hard to also project a religious face because they realize society as a whole uh, has become religious. This is really raises big questions about because if you look at Arab societies, I mean, ironically, again, you know this, in the 1920s, on 1930s, on 1940s, up to the, the late 1940s, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt could not even gain one single parliamentary seat in Egypt. Al-Waft Party, one of the most liberal parties, dominated Egyptian politics from 1923 to 1949. And this is a testament. This is Egypt. Uh, the Egyptian constitution of 1923 was one of the most progressive constitutions in the world, as progressive as the American Constitution. Say what have you about the British, I mean, uh, colonial presence in Egypt, but there was parliamentary life. There was uh, engaged active life, even for a small minority. Uh, if you look at the Arab world in the 1950s and 1960s, and even under Gamal Abdel Nasser and the military, there were societies, I mean, because again, part of the whole, the rise of nationalism 
Um, but of course, uh, what happened in the 19, 1967 really, uh, to my mind, really marked a watershed. We're um, asking you to look into the future for yes. us. So, uh, uh, history, no history, don't yeah, take sorry. us back to the past <laughs> again. After the question here, I'm going back to where um, you thought I started over there. Ellen had a question here. She yeah, no, no, she's next. Uh, Ellen Darendorf, it's just pressing you a bit further. What would be in the head of a young liberal um, as opposed to a young Islamist? I, I, I don't mean someone who's very extreme and anti-religion and revolutionary, but someone who makes that choice. What would the difference be? Is it just women and social conservatism or, or what? Well, I mean, I, I think uh, this is the uh, I, I, really what we have seen in the last few weeks in Egypt. Uh, it, it's so tragic to see the young uh, liberal activists on the streets, uh, the outcry by the basically who trigger the revolts in Egypt and other places, and that uh, now they feel that basically it's owned by different. I mean, the Islamists did not really play a key role in the revolts in the Arab world, yet they're inheriting. Uh, the spoils. I mean, that's a reality. That's a reality. Uh, I think they expected uh, the military to relinquish power. They expected uh, constitutionally based uh, 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 genuine uh, liberal oriented uh, political entities. They expected liberal constitutions, uh, personal freedoms enshrined in the constitutions, uh, uh, in terms of citizenship, in terms of uh, and you have many liberals in Egypt. Uh, the question is, again, I don't need to tell you, is that I don't think liberals have articulated, again, we, we criticize the Islamists for not having a blueprint. I don't think the uh, liberals in Egypt and other places have articulated a blueprint for the morning after. In Tunisia, in Morocco, and in Egypt, liberals and seculars basically design an electoral campaign anti-Islamist as opposed to a fut futurist-oriented campaign. They were decimated because they basically ran on an anti-Islamist platform as opposed on a positive platform. This is our vision for the future. Instead of really trying to connect with voters in Medina Salam and in Baba and Saeed and Shaqiyya and go in places in, they basically tried to portray the Islamists as caricature figures, literally speaking, as somehow a threat to the nation. Well, if I were living in Egypt, such conditions, the poverty. If I know my neighbors, the Islamists, who have been struggling very hard for the last decade, who basically were uh, resisting the existing order, surely I don't buy the liberal message, the anti-Islamist message by the liberals. And that's why I think liberals are whining, and they, they have to stop whining, uh, buckle up, really. And I think the rise of the Islamists, I hope, really, it sends a powerful message to nationalist and liberal forces throughout the Arab world. They must invest hard social capital. They must address the voters' concern. They must, I mean, learn the skills of Islamists. I mean, I don't need to tell you. They, I mean, talk about local politics. Americans know local politics. They, they, they basically have mastered the art of local politics. They appeal, and that's the way it is. That's the way it should be. And that's why, I think, in a way, I mean, an argument can be made that the Islamists will basically regret the moment that basically gain majorities, in particular if they have executive power. They don't have executive power. I don't think the militaries will allow them to govern because they have I mean, majorities in the parliament.
But I mean, I think if liberals are really genuine, if they are serious, if they have, I mean, uh, basically uh, uh, the determination, they have four years to embed themselves in the societies and develop the blueprints, basically, and try to connect with the voters. Um, will I get? Will I? Do I bet on on liberals? No, I don't think so. I and the history. Of, I think. Sorry. I, okay. No, no, it's all right. Now, was there more than one in that corner? Just you. Okay. Then this gentleman here, and this woman here, then uh, the one with the white shirt and the tie. And that's going to be it, I yeah, suspect. Yeah, he's chair. <laughs> right. Uh, Rania Sadawi, Egyptian-American master's student here at LSE. I have a question. Um, Professor, I agree with you that the Islamist movements are obviously more nonviolent, and they're looking to institutionalize their things. My fear right now, especially in the situation of Egypt, is um, you don't have the situation where in Turkey you've been institutionalizing something secular for over 50 years, and then you had Akape come in. Now in Egypt you're having a predominantly Muslim-led, uh, Muslim Brotherhood and Salafi-led um, parliament who is supposed to set up a constitution. What about the fact that when you're institutionalizing these things, the fear that they're going to institutionalize restrictions on personal freedoms, restrictions on women, even if the Salafis allowed females to, to run, they did not put their pictures anywhere. There's only seven females in the parliament right now, which is less than 1% of representation. There has been already a push that the president of Egypt can only be a male and not a female. So I don't think these things are things to be taken lightly. In fact, they should be on the forefront of the thing. In fact, since the end of the revolution ended on February 11th, the focus was like from the liberals themselves saying, let's not focus on women's rights. We need to focus on building a constitution. We need to focus building democratic institutions. In Egypt, the debate now is not even whether we're going to have a democracy. It's a debate between whether we're going to be a civil state or an Islamic state. The okay, word democracy okay, is not even used. He did ask for somebody to refute his argument. You've done yeah. it. So I, I guess my question is, my question is, is the oh, fear that they, how do you see in the next year or two that liberal, tenden, uh, liberal groups, uh, minorities, etc., can work with them to make sure that these freedoms are not restricted in the institutions? Because the minute they are, that's when it's going to be difficult to change By the way, things. really thank you so much because, I mean, I think you really articulated the fears um, and the aspirations of many, uh, I mean, uh, liberal-minded Egyptians and Arabs today. You asked me what, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, I, I think she worries about the fact that restrictions on women will be uh, institutionalized in the Constitution. She worries about the fact that basically uh, personal freedoms will be uh, violated uh, and mutilated in new constitutions. You worried about the fact that debate is not taken into account, I mean, very deeply enshrined constitutional <coughs> freedoms. But I think, let me, let me address this question very, again, uh, we have to wait and see. But based on what we know, and again, we, we, we're just trying to assess the rhetoric because we don't, the Islamists have gone out of the way, I'm talking about the Muslim Brotherhood, that they will not basically construct a constitution that goes against the national consensus, point one. They have made it very clear that all points of view all political players, including liberals and nationalists, who did not do well in the parliament, will be on the committee, will be on the 100 man and woman committee to write the constitution. They have gone out of their way that they will not impose, they will not add any particular clause to the constitution that talks about an Islamic state. The, the, the current constitution, the Egyptian constitution, says uh, uh, Egypt, uh, Sharia is 
uh, as opposed the is a as opposed the source of legislation is a source of legislation. Uh, Islamic Islamic law is a source of legislation as opposed to the source. Again, the Islamists have said we will not add a single word to change this. We will not impose our own. And and more importantly, by the way, I want you to know, top leaders of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood have gone out of their way to say that personal freedoms, individual freedoms, diversity, religious tolerance will be enshrined in the Constitution. Okay. I mean, for now, you're going to have to leave it at that for us. I'm going to have to take the last three in a row, and then you get one more. Go at it. Yes. Uh, well, thank you for your speech. Uh, my question is: with Can you tell us who you are? Uh, member of the public. Uh, <laughs> member what? <laughs> the public. Uh, Good man. <laughs> so Get on with it. <laughs> so my question is just with regard to geostrategic implications. So I'm just wondering: I mean, uh, do you think the U.S. will be will be closer to uh, Shiite movements? of Iran in particular, uh, especially if someone bears in mind the, the sectarian conflict between Sunnis and, uh, and Shiites. So do, do you think basically uh, ties will be forged between the US and Iran in particular, and the US basically will favor Iran over Saudi Arabia as a strategic ally? And how Wonderful question. That's enough of it. OK, and here? Please, the woman here. Professor Mosafi, you said apply to. Can you, can, I'm sorry, even sorry, if only to tell us. Uh, I just wanted to ask a question. Basically, most of what you said about uh, pragmatic but not democratic, good for business Muslim applies to communities and societies where the change has happened and most, mostly without major casualties in comparison to Syria. The violence has escalated there. The onslaught continues. How do you see the violence changing, actually, the balances of those sort of Muslims in Syria, especially that you refer to as Zawahiri? And a lot of people are saying it's a, it's a very imminent risk. We have to tackle it. Do you see that as a risk, actually, or is it just a sideshow and the, the movement in Syria is still uh, what it started about, people's rights to express themselves? OK, another huge but really good question. Last one. Uh, my name is Alif, um, previously with the International Islamic University of Malaysia, now with LSE. Uh, my question is that you, you seem to hint earlier on in your um, presentation that uh, the Islamist politics now, especially with the M Muslim Brotherhood, is threading the middle ground. Uh, but do you reckon that Wasatiya politics, or like moderation politics, is sort of like the politics for Arabs and the Islamists from now on end? And if so, what exactly do you mean by Wasatiya? Like, what, what exactly I'm do you sorry. mean by what do I mean by what? By wasatiya, by yes. moderation. Like, wh what exactly does that term mean? Because it, in itself, it's, it's controversial. It, it uh, covers a lot of things, from violence to things like conversion. So if, if, if it is the case that politics for the Arabs or the, for the Islamists in the future is going to be moderation, then what is it? What does that mean? Okay, we've had the, the facing off between Saudi Arabia and Iran and the intra-Islamic sectarian dimension and how will that dimension play out in Syria and now this. In You've got two minutes. Wow, <laughs> I think she's really a tough chair. Three minutes. I've already lost you, 20 seconds. Yes, you <laughs> negotiated with me. Uh, well, I mean, on the question of Iran, uh, you, you, we, all we have been hearing the last few weeks, the drums of war, 
where I mean, the U.S. And, and its allies and Iran are basically on, on the brink of war. Uh, so I think they, uh, original, I, I have to, uh, uh, it's, it's very difficult for me to imagine uh, a scenario whereby uh, the uh, strategic alliance between Saudi Arabia and the United States is replaced by any kind of a, a, uh, an alliance with Iran at this particular moment. Because let's hope that uh, the drums of war uh, don't really basically uh, uh, not get out to the ultimate conclusion. That's really what's, what seems to be happening, escalating tensions. I want to really focus a, a bit on Syria because we, we have not, uh, uh, I just came back from, from the region there. And uh, uh, there are really several developments happening. Uh, if you talk to the opposition and uh, they're saying uh, there are some major tensions uh, within Syria, and forget about outside Syria, between the Muslim uh, uh, followers of the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamists and the opposition and the non-affiliated opposition. And uh, many of the non-affiliated opposition, some of the soldiers, the factors, basically say that uh, they really, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood distributing arms to their own uh, members. Uh, we're also seeing many reports, according to American intelligence, that uh, when these are concrete reports, that uh, more and more hardcore Islamists are migrating from Iraq and Lebanon to Syria. These are not just a speculation. Uh, serious, I mean, uh, there are multiple reports, uh, I mean, uh, credible reports from various sources mm -hmm. uh, and major battles, and these are very hard fighters that, uh, I mean, I, I think, uh, to my mind, the longer the, the, the struggle continues, the more blood is, is shed in Syria, uh, the more the, and even the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, which is really, this is unlikely the calling for jihad, uh, calling for a, a jihad as a duty. I mean, the same call that was heard in Afghanistan in the 1980s now is, is beginning to be heard in Syria itself. And it's changing the whole, it will likely change and transform the struggle in Syria. Uh, in particular, if the call for jihad uh, basically replaces the call of, of a, uh, a broadly based uh, alliance. So you have the potential uh, of really the Islamicization of the uh, opposition uh, because of, of many reasons. Uh, and if this happens, I think, uh, not because I, this would be disastrous, because you, you could be talking about, uh, I mean, a, a, a very explosive situation and Syria would become really, in many ways, uh, similar to that of Iraq from 2003 to 2008, uh, and nobody knows the consequences for Syria for the morning after. The question then will not be, uh, you know, whether Assad is out or not. I mean, Assad is a matter of time. We know, uh, we don't know how long it's going to be. Uh, it's nine months, a year, two years, nobody knows. It's all speculation. He still has a great staying power, I, I mean, uh, but the reality is the question is, how do you man the rifts? How do you glue Syria, Syria back together? How do you, because Syria is a very diverse society, a mosaic of cultures, and this is really quite, and that's, that's a nightmare scenario. And uh, I mean, I, I think Syria now really stands at junction, very critical junction. And it's not just a, a kalam, it's uh, because we are seeing slowly and gradually the nature of the opposition changing and becoming not only more armed, uh, it's becoming, the, I mean, Islamist in nature. Uh, I mean, it's not just about Ayman Zawahiri calling for, uh, it, it's I mean, mainstream Islamist. And there, as you know, there was a big debate. Even the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria wanted to call for jihad. If 
few days ago and, and basically relented, but then now it's, it's a different situation. This is not to say that all Islamists are militant and dangerous, please, that that's not the question, but it changes the whole context of the struggle. And also it changes the whole context of the morning after, what do you do with Syria? Uh, uh, you're right, Al-Wasatiyya. Uh, Al-Wasatiyya is the, the middle ground. Uh, uh, I think this is a very complex term. It means many things. Uh, but I think some of the points I, I put on the table today really take us in that particular direction. The question of pragmatism, the question of citizenship, the question of religious tolerance, uh, the whole idea. This, this is really what, I mean, the call for Wasatiyya in Islam uh, bigger point I try to make, and I hope I have succeeded, and I could be wrong, I, this is, is what I'm saying is that it's not just about, I mean, wasatiyya in terms of a call for a middle ground, we're talking about institutionalization. Because once you institutionalize uh, the political processes, in, then you're talking about a different thing. This is, even Islamists have to function within the institutional process, uh, and that's what we hope. So uh, at this particular juncture, we're seeing a great deal of wasatiyya. I'm hoping in the next five or 10 years, we will be talking about institutionalized societies and the debates, the big debates, the big battles, the big fights will take place within the context of institutions as opposed to uh, undefined, undelineated, and very uh, vague terms. For once, you addressed the subject uh, that you came to talk about and a great deal more, and you've opened the way, actually, uh, right at the end there for the next in the lecture series on the Arab uprisings. Uh, this will be given by Professor Charles Tripp, and it's on the politics of resistance and the Arab uprisings. That's on Thursday, February the 23rd at 6.30 in the Hong Kong Theater. And now, it only remains to say to Fawaz Georges a big thank you for your